0: You know, I just have to say that uh, I knew Rick before he got married for a little while, and uh, I just think Mila has done a really nice job in um, influencing Rick. And uh, it's really uh, kind of interesting to just kind of observe that. When you don't see people for a long period of time, you can kind of pick up these changes that happen in people's lives. It's kind of exciting. And uh, Rick reminded me when uh, you talked about baptisms and so forth, next Saturday is our Discovering Trinity class, and uh, I know there are several people planning on baptism, so excuse me, Um, this class is a requirement for baptism, so I'd encourage you, anybody interested in learning more about the church and joining the church or in being baptized uh, this Saturday morning, 9 o'clock downstairs, uh, I look forward to being together with uh, whoever shows up, so Uh, This morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to Romans chapter 14. I'm kind of excited that we're finally at Romans chapter 14, uh, because I think that a lot of Christians don't even know that Romans 14 is in the Bible. All right? It's kind of an interesting passage of Scripture. You know, we've been working our way through the book of Romans uh, for quite a while now, ever since last January, and I think that most Christians would agree that unity in God's family is really important to God. Unity among God's people is something that's very important to God. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote to that church, and he said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. Do everything you can. To preserve, to keep the unity that God creates by his spirit. In John chapter 17, Jesus, right before he died, this is, you know, right at the end of his life, right before he's going to go to the cross, prays this prayer. So I always think, you know, what people pray is what's closest to their hearts. And, so, and, and the interesting thing about this prayer, John chapter 17, is that Jesus is praying for his disciples, but then he specifically prays for you and I. He prays for the people who will become believers through those disciples. He prays for you and I, and here's what he says. My prayer is not for just them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that be us, that all of them may be one, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, as the Trinity itself is united And is one, as God is one in three persons, that his people would reflect his nature by being one together. Uh, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Big part of our witness to the world is how we can get along with one another. Whether or not we can dwell in unity. Uh, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are. Uh, I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. I don't think anybody would argue that unity is an extremely important value to God amongst his people. And uh, our witness to the world is so dependent upon it. Now, you know, we all love unity, right? Uh, How many people said after this last presidential debate, if you watch the debate, how many people, commentators and so forth said, that was so painful to watch because of the disunity. And I'm sure that you know this race is so close that on November 7th, half of America is gonna wake up disappointed. And nobody really wants that. A divided America is a very weakened America. We all want a strong America. We wanna live in a country where there's some unity where we can rally around something that we can all agree about, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we all love unity. I love when unity is in our marriage. When Barb and I are clicking, you know what? The world is as it should be. Right? It's just the way it is. I love it when unity happens in our family. And, uh, you know, you know that I've been on, uh, you know, uh, this past summer to a couple of um, family weddings. And... um, we had some things going on in our family over the last few years that, you know, threatened to kind of blow us apart as an extended family. And, and God's been at work and it was great to be back together at these weddings and to see this unity coming back because of some things, some changes that God has actually affected in some of the people in our extended family. And, you know, what? I love it when unity dwells in our church. Don't you love it when unity dwells in the church? You know, Psalm 133, it says this, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant. Everybody wants unity. And uh, God, however, is so right when he says, you know, make every effort. It's going to take something to pull unity off. You're going to have to give something in order to make unity actually a reality and uh, make every effort to keep the unity. It takes effort. God's spirit creates the unity. We become brothers and sisters by the blood of Christ. When we become believers and we put our faith in the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for our salvation, we become related to one another. We become blood-related through the blood of Christ. Uh, But the effort that it takes, it takes acceptance of other people where they're at even when they're not where you think they should be. It takes acceptance. It takes forgiveness when we're offended because other people do things that offend us. Uh, It takes humility to surrender ourselves to God first and then, like Jesus, to consider other people more important than myself. Remember when Jesus said that in Philippians chapter 2? He emptied himself, he humbled himself, he's God, but he didn't consider holding on to his equality with God. Why did he do that? Why did he empty himself, humble himself? He did it because he considered you and I more important than himself, and he went to the cross. Because we were toast if he didn't go to the cross. So he considered us more important than himself, and now he comes along and says, Now, I want you to follow my lead. Be like me. Uh, I think it takes faith this effort that it takes to maintain the unity that God creates takes faith to believe that God is actually at work in the other person. And you don't have to be God. You don't have to straighten the other person out. You don't have to fix the other person. You don't have to control the other person. You have faith that God is at work in this brother or sister through the Spirit, the same way he's at work in you. And so, you know, I think disunity is inevitable. We live in a world that's broken, we live in a world that's fallen, and uh, people are fallen, and sin is what separates people from God and separates people from one another. And so, um, it's very interesting, disunity, it started way back in the Garden of Eden, disunity is part of Israel's history. In the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament, the church of Philippi, there were two women who couldn't get along with each other, the rest of the congregation has taken sides, and this is threatening to divide the whole church. Because these two ladies couldn't get along and the church started taking sides. Disunity is a reality that's with us. In the Corinthian church, disunity erupted over loyalty to different leaders and what to do about specific sins that were happening in that congregation and how to address them. Um, In the book of Galatians, it's legalism that creates disunity. Paul actually says, you know, you better stop biting one another or you're going to devour one another disunity in the church Uh, the apostle Paul you know uh, has this big bahu with Peter over hypocrisy Peter you're saying one thing but you're doing something else and Paul calls him on the carpet for it uh, there in Galatians and then you are familiar with Paul and and Barnabas of all people who's just an encourager but Paul and Barnabas they have this blowout over this guy John Mark you know Barnabas wants to take him along Paul's like no he blew it. He's out. One, one and out for Paul, you know. And so they have this, this disunity. And you see this theme in Acts chapter 15. We have the first all-church council, which comes together because the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians have different ideas about how to live out their Christianity. And so the whole church has to get together. The apostles and all the heads and so forth have to come together. What are we going to do about this threat to the unity of God's church? And so we have the first church council to try to address the disunity that comes up. So in Romans chapter 14 and verse 1, we read these words Accept him whose faith is weak. Accept him. Acceptance is a condition for unity. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. I love that verse. Some Christians have never even heard that there are such things as disputable matters. I'm serious. Have you ever met a Christian for whom everything is black or white and there is no gray? Every single issue is either on this side or that side. There's absolutely no gray in their thought patterns. And there is no tolerance for somebody who disagrees with them as to whether this thing is black or white. But here's the Bible coming forward and saying, listen, there are some disputable matters. And uh, I think this is uh, significant. But uh, first of all, just notice, what's behind disunity? Except him whose faith is weak. Can I tell you what's behind disunity? Weak faith. Weak faith. It's always weak faith. When We're we're talking about Christians. This is written to a church. It's written to the church at Rome, as you know. It's got Jewish Christians in it, Gentile Christians in it. It's written to a church. What's behind disunity when it happens? Weak faith. What's really behind when two Christians are married and they divorce, what's the issue that's going on there really at the grassroots? Weak faith. Because with God's help, you can address the issues in your life. But if your faith is weak, and you don't particularly get it yet, and you haven't applied God's resources to your life, and you don't, you know, the Apostle Paul says, man, in Romans chapter 7, he's like, remember we studied this? The Apostle Paul, he's like, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me, man. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I, you know, want to do, I just don't seem to be able to do them. And then we get into chapter 8, and Paul's like, who's going to help me? And then it's all about the Spirit of God coming. And being this tremendous resource to change, transform people into Christ-likeness. What's behind disunity? When it's all said and done, I say it's weak faith among Christians. And so, you know, what's going to be different about us when we get to heaven? (laughs) We're all going to be mature. Isn't that going to be great? You know what the Bible says? That our faith is going to turn into sight. And we're going to be like Christ. We're going to see him for who he really is. We're going to be so excited. We're just going to be yielded to be like him because he'll be so superior. And so, uh, you know, our faith will turn to sight and we'll, we'll be like him. But in the meantime, our faith needs to permeate every single aspect of our lives, especially our relationships. Now, last week, Pastor Chris talked from Romans chapter 13 that we're to live in such a way that we owe people nothing except one thing, that we owe it to one another to love each other. Remember? We owe it to people to love other people. You know why? Because God loved us in Christ. And so we owe it to whoever God brings into our path that we would love them. And um, so this faith needs to permeate, you know, our relationships in, in such a way That we would do what Jesus said is the single two most important things you can do with your life on this earth. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love the next person as you love yourself. There's nothing you could give yourself to that's more important or significant than those two things. Okay? Now, the problem is we all, I'm going to suggest, have areas where our faith is weak. We all have areas in our lives where our faith is actually weak. And, um, not only that, you, you know, you have parts of your life where your faith, you know, should be having a deeper impact. Would you agree with that? Would you argue with that? Would you say, oh, no, I'm, I'm strong in every area of my life. My faith is impacting me exactly the way God would have it, and I'm perfect. I don't think anybody would say that. We all have areas where we have weak faith. Now, furthermore, you don't always recognize the area where your faith is weak. But guess what? Other people do. And it annoys other people. And they have to decide what they're going to do about it, right? Not only that, but a lot of times, in the exact area where our faith is weak, we think it's a strength. We think this is what pleases God the most. And really, it's an area that's kind of a weak area, but we're so convinced... Because of our background, because of our experiences and so forth. Like, for example, if you read the next verse here, this, Paul uses two illustrations as to what was going on in the church at Rome. He says, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. What's going on here? You've got Jewish and non-Jewish people in the church. So here's this Jewish guy, becomes a Christian. But his whole life, from the time he grew up in his mom and dad Jewish home, he's been taught that he shouldn't eat certain things. Everything's got to be kosher. Everything's got to be killed the right way. No blood left in it. And he's got all of these laws. You know, the Jews took the Ten Commandments and blew them into 600 laws and regulations. So now this poor Jewish guy, he's living in Rome. He's far away from Jerusalem where he can just pick up kosher food anyplace. He's living up here in Rome. He said, I can't find anything kosher. You know what? Instead of trying to figure all this out, I'm just going to become a vegetarian. So he only eats vegetables. The next guy uh, comes to Christ. He's a Gentile guy. He's used to eating everything, you know what? And he becomes a Christian. He joins the same church as the Jewish Christian. So they're going to church together. And one day they're going out. They become friends and whatnot. And the Gentile Christian says, hey, why don't you come over to my house for a cookout? I'm going to cook up some burgers. And the Jewish guy is like, pfft. What's wrong with you? You're crazy. You don't do that. That doesn't please God. When you eat like that, that does not please God. And the Gentiles go, what, what is wrong with you? And so we have a church fight and we have disunity. And both people have strong opinions, but the, the Bible says the guy who's eat, not eating this food is doing it for God's sake. But the Bible calls him weak in his faith. And there's other places if we had the time that we could go to and just show why it is that way and so forth. But this guy's thinking, this is the strongest part of my faith, my diet. But if you just look, if you have your Bibles open in Romans you know, 14, verse 17, I, I love this verse too. It says, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace. It's about unity. What is the kingdom of God really about? Is it about dietary laws? Is it about those kinds of things? And, um, you see, this issue of food just became such an issue for Jews and Gentiles. The other illustration Paul uses in verse 5 was the whole business of which day do you worship on? Because to the Jews, the Sabbath day was it. This is what pleases God. Worship God on Saturday. That's the seventh day of the week. It's the Sabbath. And there are Jewish Christians. Uh, you know, I have a friend who's a Seventh Day uh, Adventist kind of thing. It's like you Christians are all wrong. And a whole denomination separates from the Christian community over worship on Saturday or Sunday. And no matter what you say to them, and how you talk to them, and tell them about the resurrection on Sunday, and that's why Christians do da 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 da. da they don't really care because they've got locked in. They have what I call weak faith, and it's their strength. That's what they consider their strength. And Paul says in verse 5, he says, You know, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind and should be able to get along with each other. except the person whose faith is weak, even when they think that's their strongest point. Isn't this a great passage? Can you see how this would revolutionize the church and our ability to get along with people? I mean, I just love that this is in the Bible. huh? Um, so disunity erupts when you cannot accept me with my weak spots and you pass judgment on me. Verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, again, this is between Christians. Now, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there are some issues that are indisputable. Not all issues are disputable, but not all issues are indisputable either. So some issues are indisputable. I would say to you that um, all Christians, it's indisputable, believe in God. It's indisputable. If you don't believe in God, you can't be a Christian. You just can't, right? It's indisputable. All Christians believe in God. But aside from Jesus, I would suggest to you that no one's understanding of God is perfect. And therefore, your assumptions about God are disputable. For example, you know, we have a men's Bible study, Thursday morning, 6 o'clock. We're studying the book of Job. So we have a bunch of guys together, 6 o'clock, you know, this past Thursday. And here's the deal. God, God now, our God, the God we've come together to worship today, our God... Allows all of Job's kids to be killed for the sake of winning an argument with, of all things, Satan. Some guy says, that's not my God. I say, weak faith. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who's, this guy says, my God is a God of love. He would never do that. I say, weak faith. You don't understand God. It's debatable that your, your interpretation, your understanding of God, it's debatable. Look what it says. You see what I'm saying? And guys, by the way, this is a great study. I would encourage you to join our study on Thursday mornings. We had such a great discussion. And Job is such a foundational, you know, I think Job answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people? What's going on behind the scenes so that we can make sense of the life that we live? I'd encourage you to. Make the effort to get up a little earlier and come join us. We have breakfast first and so on. Anyway, I think all Christians believe in God, indisputable. But nobody's understanding of God is perfect, and so some of your assumptions about God are disputable issues. And some of us have weak spots in our understanding of God. And we are to accept the person, not pass judgment on them, you know, Here's another one. I think all Christians believe that the Bible is God's word. It's indisputable. If you don't believe that the Bible is God's word, you can't be a Christian. Because now we just have opinions. We don't have any revelation from God. We just have everybody's two cents. That's not how Christians operate. All Christians believe that God's word is the Bible. It's indisputable. But aside from Jesus, no Christian perfectly knows what God meant by everything that's written in the Bible. True. No Christian knows for sure exactly what God meant when he wrote the Bible. I've spent a lifetime studying the Bible, and I would tell you there is an element of mystery to God's revelation, which gives you, when you understand it, an even deeper respect and hunger to know better what it is that God is really saying. And to compare Scripture with Scripture so that you can get closer to the sense of what God really meant when he said this for us to have. And so um, this hunger drives us, you know. To understand what God is telling us. But you know what? Sometimes people will latch on to just one truth from the Bible, and they'll make it their whole truth. And it becomes disputable. You know, it's just like in the presidential election. Some people will vote for a president on the basis of one item. There's a whole slew of things to consider. But some people are just like, well, I'm going to make my decision on just this one item. Boom, and that's it. Well, there's more than that. You know, God says a lot of things. And so, you know, for example, uh, a lot of times people say, well, you know, God is love. And I've heard people, uh, you know, defend homosexuality on the basis. Well, God is love. And how could God be against love? And love is this, and love is that. And Well, if you compare, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, you know what the Bible also says? Love, you know, uh, loves the truth. Love rejoices in truth. You can't just have love without truth. You know, and so on and so forth. And so when we do that, you know, it becomes a disputable issue. Your interpretation of what God means uh, becomes disputable. But what are we supposed to do with somebody whose faith is weak and who only thinks like that? Well, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment. Here's another one. I think all Christians believe that salvation... Forgiveness from God comes through faith in Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. All Christians believe in salvation by faith. But the implications of that salvation and how it works out in people's lives is disputable. Um, I often, for example, will hear a Christian say, I feel so guilty for what I did. And I love to be able to come alongside that person and say, well, don't you believe that Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And they'll say, yeah, but, which is to say, yeah, I understand that intellectually, but down in my heart where I really live out of, I feel guilty. And I, what is that? Weak faith. Weak faith. Especially people who come out of Catholicism. I'm sure in the Philippines, you know, guilt is like used as a manipulator. And love is the opposite, right? I mean, God loves us and sets us free. Jesus took our guilt upon himself. It's the gift. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Uh, and so it becomes a debatable issue. Weak faith. And we could go on and on and on. But again, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. What's indisputable holds us together. What's disputable threatens To create disunity and blow us apart, especially when our our faith is weak. And I want to say all of us have areas where our faith is weak. It's one of the reasons for church. It's one of the reasons for small church. When you get close enough to people, you begin to recognize weak spots. And if you're brave enough and have confidence enough that the God of the universe wants to grow you and transform you into Christ like this, you don't mind other people gently, lovingly pointing out I think this might be a weak spot for you. I think you might have a blind spot. I think you're not seeing this. You know, every time, you know, your wife wants to talk, you're butting in. Stop it. It annoys me. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, there's these uh, weak spots. And, I, you know, we don't worry too much about the food we eat. Uh, we don't worry too much about the day we worship. But how about this? How about the role of women in church? Disputable issue. 1 Corinthians um, Chapter 11. I'm just going to read this for you. Uh, well, no, I won't. It takes too long. But First Corinthians chapter 11 says it's very improper for a woman to pray without a head covering. Remember that passage? First Corinthians chapter 11. Paul goes on to talk about the length of hair. He talks about head covering. He says it's it's really improper for a man to be wearing a hat and pray. It's equally improper for a woman to not have a covering on her head to show that she's in submission to the authority of her husband and Christ. And Paul lists a whole chain of authority there. Now, why don't we do that anymore? Well, look, my wife grew up in a church where they took that seriously. When I met my wife, whenever we would go to worship, she would always wear either a hat or some covering on her head. And so even today, if I ask my wife to say, honey, would you get up here and give a testimony? And if there's men in the, in the deal, she's like, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with that. So, you know, I'm like, hey, listen, you know, this verse over here says there's no male or female. Once we're in Christ, you know, look at this person who's female who had influence in the church and did these things and that. It and doesn't matter. In her conscience, she feels, because that's the way she was brought up, even though I would say my wife is spiritually way more mature than a lot of men, for her, that's not the point. She was raised that way. And, and still to this day, like these Jews who couldn't eat meat and were vegetarians in their honoring God and their understanding of how to please God, that's, that's where she's at. And, and so, you know, this is a disputable issue. And uh, at first, I was trying to straighten her all out, you know, fix her, you know, get that all turned around, want to use her in church, come on, you can help me. Now, I just accept her, accept the person, right, whose faith is weak in a certain area because we all have those. We all have those issues, okay? Now, I checked with her to make sure it was okay if I shared that with you, so <laughs> just because uh, I could see the look on your faces, like, you know, I'm going to shoot you for saying that, da, 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 all right. The role of women. All right, here's another one. How about the use of money? Disputable issue. Okay? Um, take somebody who grew up impoverished. They grew up really poor. And um, they're very conscious about it and so forth. They are drawn to passages in the scripture that talk about working hard, saving money, being uh, good stewards, and, and so forth. And um, I, I had a guy one time who told me, Look, he said, I'm going to become a millionaire, and then I'm going to serve God. First, I'm going to make a million dollars, and then once I get that set, then I'll be ready to serve God. So I quoted Matthew 6:33 to him. I said, you know, seek first the kingdom of God, and God will give you all this stuff. He said, no, this is what I'm going to do. He was like, I think, 36, 38 years old. He had a heart attack, you know? And so all through the Bible, we're told to be generous. We're told to be compassionate. We're told to be giving. And, and somebody who grew up sort of impoverished, they're, like, they're just focusing on all those scriptures that say, hold on to it, hold on to it, take care of yourself, be responsible, <laughs> let the other people take care of themselves. All through the Bible, we're to be concerned for the poor. We're to have compassion on people who are disadvantaged and, and all the rest of it, right? Um, how about music in worship? A <laughs> debatable issue. Um, I thought about this a little bit, music and worship. We'll talk a little bit more about it next week. But if I had a dollar for every time somebody in church said, I hated that music, I'd be driving a Corvette today. I really would. (laughs) And you know what? It comes from both sides. It's like the hymn lovers, right? They're like, don't those people know that God says do everything decently and in order? That music is trying to be like the world. It's not decent. It's not in order. And the people on the other side are like, don't those hymn singers ever recognize and read their Bible that God says, sing a new song once in a while? It's like something new. This was written in the 1700s. Get over it. Come on. Isn't God doing anything today? Doesn't he have anything contemporary to say? And there we go. I say both sides demonstrate kind of weak faith. Because I only see one side of the issue. Right? The truth is both. Uh, Bible translations I mean I could go on here we're going to run out of time before I get done But um, you know, I, I had somebody in, in our church quite a few years ago now but they're on a campaign to get the King James Bible back in the seats because that was the true Bible and everything else from that point forward is a perversion and when it didn't work they left the church disunity can't fellowship here anymore can only go to a King James only church Every once in a while, I'll quote something from the living Bible. Somebody will actually make me feel like a sinner for quoting the Bible from the living Bible. Because the living Bible, is, it's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. One man translated the Bible for his kids. But every once in a while, he sort of captures, in a, and with words, something that really connects. And some people are like, ah, I can't deal with that. You're out, you know, and so on. So, now, here's the thing. If you have your Bibles open, I I want you to see this because this, to me, is so interesting. Romans 14, 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. You wanna be a strong Christian or a weak Christian? You know what a strong Christian is? A strong Christian is somebody who can get along and be unified with a weak Christian. I read verse, uh, chapter 15 verse one and I said to myself, oh my goodness, it's not about you. Something bigger is going on in the church than just what pleases you. You keep reading here in 15, he says, you know, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. Every time we create this unity, we're just pleasing ourselves. That's what's really going on. I want it to be my way. I want it to be like I think it should be. Look at this, verse 2. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ didn't please himself. The God of the universe didn't please himself. He emptied himself, humbled himself, didn't really want to go to the cross. Please, Father, if there's some other way. He didn't please himself. He pleased us in making a way. Well, Romans 14, look Uh, Verse 7. None of us lives to himself alone. If you're a Christian, you don't live to yourself. It's not about you. None of us lives to himself alone. If we're a Christian and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, listen to this, verse 10, 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord. Why did Christ die and be resurrected? So that he might be Lord, right? Of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. As it's written, as sure as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So then each of us will have an opportunity to give an account of himself, not the next person. To God. Can I tell you, you've got all you can do to take care of yourself, let alone trying to run the next person's life. I want to close with this. Um, This is how I think this sort of plays out, okay? If I can, I know I'm running out of time here, but um, I just think this is too good to miss. Um, When I please myself, why do I do that? Why, Why would I not accept a weaker Christian? A lot of times I do it. To make myself look better. Why would you gossip about somebody's failure? Why would you gossip about somebody's failure? Don't we do it oftentimes to make ourselves look better, which is just a matter of seeking praise? Can I tell you, every time we do these things on the left, we compete with God. Seeking praise competes with God because God is worthy of praise. You and I are not. Anything good in our life comes from God. In fact, our life itself comes from God. So every time we seek praise and we don't accept somebody else or we put them down or gossip about them or distance ourselves from people because we don't want to be associated with them or whatever reason, a lot of times it's because we're seeking praise. And we compete with God rather than cooperate. And then controlling. You know, we try to control the other person. That's when you do what you can to get the other person to do what you want. It's the opposite of loving people and trusting that God is at work in them. You're taking God's role. Who's in control? God is in control. You know what the Bible says? You cannot even control your own life without God's help. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. You need the Holy Spirit to be able to do, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, why do I do the things I don't want to do? You need the Holy Spirit to even have self-control, let alone try to control somebody else. Third thing, judging. Every time you compete with God, if we had time, I'd bring it to some scriptures, but judging, God is the judge. God wrote the laws and God is the judge. It's not up to us to judge. Every time we judge somebody, we compete with God. And then rejection. Every time, the opposite of accepting somebody with weak faith is rejecting them. Oh, you can't really be a believer. You're not really a Christian. You didn't show up for the work day you know, last Saturday. You can't really be a Christian. Oh, you came late to church. You can't really love God, et cetera, et cetera. And and so we reject people. That's God's prerogative. That's not our prerogative. You know what? You owe it to people to love them. Remember Romans 13. So how do you reverse this? And you know what happens when this happens? Um, Broken relationships, disunity. This is what creates disunity, right? Okay. So how do you reverse this? Well, I would say, instead of seeking praise, trying to, you know, make yourself feel good, the truth is, if you start by humbling yourself and recognizing who God is and who I am. I mean, I'm made out of the dust of the earth. Everything I have, including the life of, the breath of life, comes from God. So, I mean, who am I? Why would I want to get praise? I mean, I'm made out of dirt. And everything that I have that's worth anything has come from God. It's very humbling. But I would say to you that seeking praise and humbling yourself are opposites. And when you're humble, you have the ability to consider the other person more important than yourself. You know what that does? It builds relationships, right? Just take your spouse, consider her more important than yourself. Take your husband, consider him more important than yourself. You, you revolutionize marriage. Second, uh, second thing, I got too many gizmos. Trust God. You know what? When you do this over here, the idea is, you know what? I'm going to be God. I'm competing with God. Over here, if you say, you know what? I got this brother, but he's got weak faith. Well, I'm going to trust that God is at work in his life. Oh, I got this teenager, and they've got weak faith. Well, I'm going to fix them. I'm going to control them, judge them, reject them, throw them out. No. I'm going to trust God. It's the opposite of I'm going to control them. I'm going to trust that God's at work in their life and believe that he's doing something in their life. And then I'm going to accept people where they're at. I'm going to accept you where you're at. Yeah, you have weak faith. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, you think it's your strength, but I see it as a weakness. I'm going to try to influence you. I'm going to share truth with you. I'm going to love you but I'm gonna do it accepting you, not rejecting you, right? It's the opposite, again, of judging. And then finally, how do you show acceptance for people you give? God so loved the world that he what? Gave. You show acceptance for people by giving them something that you have. Well, you give them acceptance, you give them affirmation, you give them praise, you give them whatever. And it's the way that we reverse this whole thing. And I would say to you that, you know, in closing, let's just close. I'm too late. But you read John 21 at the end, and you'll get Jesus saying, you know, to Peter, Peter's like all fixed up, and and Peter sees John. And remember, he says, hey, Lord, what about him? And Jesus says to him, don't you worry about John. You got all you can do to worry about Peter. Right? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this uh, uh, chapter in Romans and your word. And I pray that you'll help us to live this out. Help us to see the difference. I, I think every one of us here would want to be a strong Christian. But we all have weak spots. But together, Father, if we'd listen to one another and we'd uh, affirm one another and, and, and speak the truth but in love with one another, we could get rid of more and more weak spots and we'd become stronger in a sense that we could accept people where they're at. And we could embrace them and love them and give to them and accept them. And uh, Father, we could reverse this trend of disunity that breaks the heart of our Father. Help us, Father, to be like Jesus in this regard. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. We're going to ask our.